Am I hosting? Yes. I suppose I'm hosting. You are. Holy crap. Good job. I don't, I don't want it. What if I don't want it? <laughs> Too bad. Alright, imagine we're like... Uh, Wait, you listen to Hey Riddle Riddle, right? Yes. I, I want Hey Riddle Riddle. I want to see a scene, and it's you and me, <laughs> but we're it's like... It's like 600 AD, and we're on the battlements of a tower. And also, you're much <laughs> older than I am. All right, are you ready? You can't okay. laugh. This is a serious scene. Oh, serious. Michael, Michael, what if Middle I? Season. What if? Wait, say that again. Best season. What, what are we gonna do for you? What an excellent character voice you have, Michael. What if I? What if I'm not ready to to rule, Michael? Then you have to. Oh. Anyway. <laughs> what, what excellent wisdom you've provided me, Michael. I'm. I'm. I feel much better. Full of it. That's good. You should feel much better about it. And now it's time for you. To go and rule this kingdom that you see before you, and I'm going to fly away. (laughs) I forgot. Goodbye! I I forgot. Goodbye, Sir Icarus! I'm flying as high as I can! Say hi to your dad for me! Yes, I will! And scene. Uh, that was very silly. Uh, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> All right, I either will or will not use any of that as the the cold open to the show. <laughs> up hello gentle listener and welcome to michael and ethan in a room with scotch i'm your host uh ethan bartlett and i'm the ruler of this kingdom uh michael i forgot to ask you before uh what is the part that the light doesn't touch um don't you know don't worry about that it's just icky over there okay thank <laughs> Thank you. Um, anyway, that was my guest, Michael Lilienthal, uh, my trusted advisor and someone who is much older than I am and not <laughs> technically three days younger. Um, <laughs> Who's keeping score? Uh, absolutely no one. Um, Good. Yes. So, hi. Uh, hi. It's a proper episode, so I have to follow this script. Uh, we're going to talk about books, but not about scotch. That's right. Um, what, well, Michael, you're supposed to say hello. Oh, hello. Tell a joke, offer thoughts on politics, etc. Mm. I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very, very depressed. And no one understands my feelings. Ever. 
I said, I said tell a joke, not do like a like a white man in his thirties doing a stand up comedy routine. But um, I guess we take what we can get on this show. Uh... <laughs> uh, All right. You gonna be okay? Yep, I'm okay. I'm gonna make it. All right. Um, we gotta start drinking. <sighs> yes, we do. You sound like this. you had a thought to offer, but you keep like retreating from it. Well, it depends on like if. So I'm I'm locking you in now. You have to include that scene absolutely because. Oh, I was going. To, I was for sure thinking in that scene entirely about the times in Hey Riddle Riddle when Aaron is forced into a scene that she just really doesn't want to do and so she immediately starts looking for the exit <laughs> like what exit can i find i'm gonna fly away <laughs> i was i was already gonna say so you just now yeah <laughs> i'm yeah. just gonna fly away all right welcome to our yeah. hey riddle riddle fan cast um <laughs> we're not gonna talk about hey riddle riddle or about scotch or about no. whiskey we're gonna talk about books but first we gotta start drinking like we gotta we gotta um so michael uh we're technically not drinking scotch tonight technically and i know that like in our five plus year history of the show each of us have like done not a scotch actually i guess technically i've done it twice and you've only done it once is that right because you did the wisconsin see, i did whiskey. it with the yep the wisconsin whiskey how uh, you know i don't know if i've done a not scotch since Okay, well, Actually, I already you mention it. I already cuz I've done I did the rye cocktails way back in the day right. that nobody should listen to and uh <laughs> more recently the green spot when we were talking about yep. um uh Playboy of the Western World and other assorted mm-hmm. sing books. Um and I already wasn't going to offer an excuse for today's whiskey cuz like I don't have one. <laughs> it was just the one that when I was looking at scotch I felt like doing. Um, yeah. And instead of being a scotch, it is a it is Redbreast single pot still Irish whiskey. Mm-hmm. Um, now my edition is the Lustau edition, uh, which says sher- it, it is a sherry finish, matured in the finest hand selected sherry casks. Michael, you have an edition that is very slightly different, mm-hmm. at least in its labeling. What is your edition? Mine is the Pedro Jimenez edition, finished in uh, Pedro Jimenez sherry hogsheads. Okay, I don't so. know if there's a difference between casks and hogsheads. That's I'm not, um, you know, technical enough. On my this. guess would be a hogshead is probably just a type of cask. Yeah, that's that's that would be my gut. I just don't have the expertise to know yeah. for sure. But either way, I do feel like these are very similar expressions of Lustau. Right. Um, at least I had a guess, but uh, whether that's true or not, I do. I am, you know, p- pretty dead certain they will both be delicious. I am hoping you are right. I've had the twelve-year Redbreast before and loved it. So yeah, I've had this um, uh, um this exact edition of. Redbreast, the the loose style, the one I have, um, I have had mm-hmm. it a couple times before, and I adored it. Um, I'm gonna make this segment as fast as possible. Ethan talks about Ireland. I did first have <laughs> it in a very small whiskey bar downtown Dublin, um, mm. and uh, it was one of it was like a really small, you know, small room 
10 tables maybe, and then it had like probably 200 different whiskeys on the menu. Um, mm. Super cool place. And it was it was the one where I was like, I was looking for one and I was like, okay, I don't want to spend like 200 euro on a pour of whiskey, but I want something a little splurgy mm-hmm. that looks really good. And this is the one right. I settled on. And then I came back to the States and asked for it. And this one is true. This is not me gaslighting myself. Um, I did ask for it at my local total total wine, and the like store manager looked at me like I was insane. And then <laughs> I found it there about a year later. I think was was how roughly how long they took to start importing it. And mm. I think I I Im- immediately upon seeing it grabbed a bottle. And as I was checking out, I met I locked eyes with that store manager and just stared at him, you know, and stared <laughs> at the bottle and stared at him and stared at the bottle. Uh, just mm-hmm. you know i drew your finger across your throat <laughs> i mean not quite, i wasn't trying yes you know what yes i did do that <laughs> and now i'm wanted Good. in several municipalities <laughs> Good. so but this is just uh re-establishing the pattern that you cause us in the united states to import more things from ireland yeah it, it, it's it's your fault that red that uh, green spot is here and it's your fault that the red breast lustow edition is here so um i will take that i'm not mm-hmm. like i am i will not argue with that at all it does sound <laughs> right uh so that said michael let us uh let us pour and salute Do we have the rules? Uh, we do have the rules, don't we? Uh, better get. I mean, yeah, we can't like. I we've been we've, it's been so long since we did, you know, regular one of these episodes, and by that I mean like any more than four days that I forgot all the rules, and I'm not looking at the <laughs> script anymore like I was a minute ago. So I forgot to have Karen come in and read the rules live. Karen, please come in and read the rules live. Rule one. Once the scotch is poured and the glasses clink, the scotch must not be mentioned at any time. If anyone mentions it, they lose. Rule two. No one's mother should be mentioned in any pejorative sense or any other sense not directly indicated by the text of the book being discussed. If any mothers are mentioned, the mentioner loses. Rule three. Ethan must never say the phrase, first paragraph. If he does, he loses. Rule four. Michael must never say the words vampire, vampiric, or any derivative thereof. If he does, he loses. Rule five. If anyone has to use the bathroom during an episode, he or she loses. However, this should not stop anyone from doing so because this podcast is anti-UTI. Rule number six. The wives are entitled to one glass of scotch or some equivalent beverage. Rule number seven. If four scotch-centric episodes pass with no losses, then everyone loses. And what happens if someone breaks the rules? If one person breaks a rule, they receive a punishment in the form of a verbal stunt chosen by the person who did not break the rule. All that being said, everyone, drink responsibly. Yeah, Ethan. Yeah, Michael. Gentle, gentle listener. listener. Thank you, Karen. Uh, and excellent. With that, Sancha. Lechaim. Trying to go feed my wife.
Now, Michael, I did hear you right, and you did say feed your wife, correct? That's what I said. Okay. I have no more questions. Good. We're on the same page, then. All right, Michael. Uh, mm-hmm. What book are we reading this time, and whose fault is that? Um, the book that we are... Uh, I guess we're gonna. I guess we're gonna talk about this. Um, I mean, is... did you not want to? No, 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 no. It's fine. Uh, we're talking about the book Jude the Obscure by Thomas Hardy, and like I could just have us do a few more improv scenes. I mean, no. <laughs> <laughs> I blame it entirely on Thomas Hardy. That's, oh, that's, that's his fault it is. Oh, okay. So yeah. you're sort of shifting responsibility. Like, the fact that right. you could have chosen literally any book in the world other than, like, a couple dozen that we've already talked about, and you chose this one, mm-hmm. you're blaming that on Thomas Hardy. Yes, it's Thomas Hardy's fault. Uh, well, okay. I have no more questions about that either. Um, I knew you wouldn't. <laughs> Hmm. So, yeah. So, well, um, here I'll, I'll I'll give a little bit more. Um, I'll I'll take I'll take a, a, a modicum of responsibility okay. here. Um. So, this was a, a book that w- came to my attention in college when, um, in uh, romantic and Victorian British literature course taught by Dr. Robert Hanna. Um, so it's his fault. We. It's his fault. Um, we read uh, various books, and he was very good about the books he selected and spacing them out to make the, the reading manageable for college students, undergrad college students. Um, but, of course, that sometimes meant that um, the length of things might get cut on, a, on occasion. And so for this particular course, when we got to Thomas Hardy, which is the latest of the Victorian novelists, um, we didn't have time really to read a whole novel, so we read a collection of short stories by him. Um, uh, the Fiddler of the Reels and other stories. <clears throat> um, and I remember when I read that thinking there was more to it that I wanted to, to get more out of. I wanted to read an actual novel by Thomas Hardy. And as I learned more about him, I thought, okay, I'll, I'll give some of these novels a try. And I, I, I've read a couple, um, and they've been pretty good. And, but Jude the Obscure was one that, um, it's his last novel. It kind of hung in the air as this mysterious sort of thing, because it's, you you know, it it falls almost into the category of literature that causes riots, you know? Um, I mean, there, there were, it, it inspired book burnings. <laughs> Did it really? Um, yes, uh, especially among the clergy in uh, England. Um, there, there was at least one, uh, if not multiple, um, Anglican priests who hosted book burnings of Thomas Hardy's works um, uh, after Jude the Obscure because uh, it was so, so very um, morally horrendous um, and... As a result of much of that backlash, Thomas Hardy also then decided, all right, I'm just, I'm done writing novels. I'm not going to do novels anymore. Um, and started writing poetry instead. And so he is the last Victorian novelist and the first modernist poet. <laughs> um, as a result of all of that. Interesting. 
So because of that, and just because of like that, the controversy over it, you know, it's, it's a, it's, I don't know if it's ever been banned, but it's like a banned book where right. it's like, you can't read this. Oh, I have to. Then. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's always interesting. You know, you talked about books that caused riots, which is another, uh, mm-hmm. callback to, um, playboy of the Western world among others. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think specifically for riots, probably the history of theater has more uh, than the history of literature. Um, mm-hmm. Just as a as a sort of practical physical matter of like, you know, a, a play usually was performed first rather than read, and you have enough people in the same place and are they're provoked enough. You know, it's you've got a crowd potentially, and depending on the era of theater, a crowd that's already pretty boisterous and or drunk. So. You know, it's mm, not surprising mm-hmm. for rides to start, but, um, you know, you have, yeah, you have these, these like books that are either banned or I think, is it suppressed is probably the, when you didn't ban a book, but like you really kind of didn't want people to be reading, like you discouraged a book maybe, Yeah, I think is suppressed is usually the term. Like, yeah, there is an inherent yeah. fascination to, to books like that. Um, it's probably... Probably, like, Ulysses by Joyce has probably garnered more readers than it would have otherwise because it was famously sort of put on trial multiple times for, um, uh, shoot, now I forget, I forget the old-timey word for, like, sexy times, but, um, <laughs> yeah. Fornication, but, like, it's Yeah, not... but there's a word specifically for it being portrayed in I... literature, yeah uh, it's like a moral out it's it's a synonym for like moral outrage i just cannot think of yeah the the actual word um i mean ulysses was put on trial for for the sexy parts much more than for mm-hmm. any of the theological parts like books have also been put on sure. trial for blasphemy um right so yeah there is there is very much a whole sort of history uh there and I myself, like, I certainly get the appeal of, uh, you know, something. It, it, it is like anytime someone in history has said, you can't read this, then like, yeah, you gotta. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I don't. Right. Ex- like, that's, 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 that, that's, that's, that's it. Right. <laughs> I mean, um, yeah, I don't know. That, that's just, um. Uh, maybe my my big reason for sure. picking this book. Have yeah. you read any other novels by Thomas Hardy, or is it just I have? What have what else have you read um, by him? I've read Mayor of Casterbridge, okay. and I've read his first novel, the title of which escapes it's a, me. Far from the Madding Crowd. Yes, Far from the Madding okay. Crowd. I think. Um, no, 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 no. That no. might be his second novel. I think. Yeah, I think that's his second. Um, and I've read part of that one. I haven't finished okay. that one, but like, uh, so Thomas Hardy has this like almost gothic feel yeah. to his writing. Yeah. Um, it's not gothic, but it's, it's like, it almost draws on some gothic themes, I think. I Yeah, I think so. In fact, that's like, that's a tension or a, um attention or like a 
motif almost that actually did interest me greatly. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so for his first novels, the first published one was called Under the Greenwood Tree. Then the next one was mm-hmm. Far from the Matting Crowd. Then after that was The Return of the Native. This, uh, oh, okay. Um, yeah, okay. Well, okay, for whatever reason, so, oh, I didn't, okay, I just, I didn't read the the article good. Um, mm. the Wikipedia article lists his works, and I just read novels in the heading, but it was novels of character and environment, starting with The Poor oh. Man and the Lady, which was lost, Under the Greenwood Tree, and then Far From the Madding Crowd is the first famous one in 1874. Mm -hmm. But then there's another um, heading for Novels of Ingenuity and Desperate Remedies. Oh. uh, That makes sense. It's published in 1871, meaning it is his first novel other than the one that's, like, considered lost and basically irrelevant to this conversation. Okay, so you called that novels of ingenuity. That's what Wikipedia said. That's what that's what they said. Okay, I, I I'm intrigued by that that concept because yeah, um, what the impression I get with Thomas Hardy is he experiments yeah. in his writing a good deal, um, and it in Desperate Remedies, which we're not talking about, <laughs> um, it it struck me at least the way he was experimenting as kind of some of the merits, at least um, when it was first staged of Dr. Faustus by Christopher Marlowe, um, where it was like all the special effects, pretty much like there are fireworks and there's, um, you know, the, 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 the horror of the demons crawling out and all that stuff. But like, it was that sensation. And it's, it's similar in desperate remedies where it's, it's, it's that sensation and um, just like things flying out all over, um, death out of nowhere and you know all the it, and like in that too there's there's with like the dark storms and stuff that come through it's also it's also very gothic yeah um in that um idea but it, it's almost like he he pulls these gothic themes but then maneuvers them around in yeah and that was uh, experimental ways i started to say this a, a, a bit ago but um that was an interesting that was like one of the first things that jumped out at me reading this book as far as like sure. the, the, you know, lingering trauma that I have from grad school where anytime I'm reading, especially something that's more on the literary end, I'm like looking for what the term paper would be about this, right? Like yeah. looking for mm-hmm. themes or motifs or um, symbols or any number of things that like could could i could just write 15 to 20 pages on you know um for a grade uh which isn't the way i recommend reading literature but it's what i'm it's what i have (laughs) um and often like one of the first things you learn uh when you are looking at stuff like that is like you want to try to come up with an opposition of some kind hmm you know, a a love hate kind of a kind of a thing. You know, would probably be the the simplest yeah. and most basic one. Um, but yeah, like the the idea. 
And I think I think this one is in there, and it's not just me sort of sort of pulling grad school threads, as they say. Um, mm. it, it, that like in its in its style, this novel is very very much smacks of the realist school, right? Like mm-hmm. um, right down to uh, the footnotes. I don't know if you have the same Wordsworth Classics edition that you got me, yep. but um, you know a lot of the footnotes talk about how like the town ta- like hardy changes the names of the towns in mm-hmm. wessex uh wessex is his fictional place is it yeah no wessex yep. is the real place he calls it something no else. wessex is fictional wessex can wessex all right now i have to google this <laughs> Um, I forget what Wessex is based on, but yeah, I mean, it's England, but what section of... No, Wessex is a real place in England. No. Yeah. No, Thomas Hardy's whole region is called Wessex. Well, then he just named it after a real place. Wait, I'm not looking at my... Oh, okay, so... This is Thomas Hardy's Wessex. So this is like if I, if I, uh, you know, wrote a series of novels and set them all in Wisconsin, but made up all the town names. Sure. So it'd be like Ethan, Ethan Bartlett's Wisconsin. So Wessex is a real place, but. Is it? I don't remember that. um, Here, I'm going to just, because I can't, I can't stand to like not be right about things. I'm sending you the Wikipedia (laughs) article about Wessex. Um. Oh, okay. No, Wessex... So Wessex is... And the other reason I know this is that uh, Wessex is one of the four great Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. Because you had Wessex, Essex, Sussex, and Northumbria. Mm -hmm. So you had the West Mm -hmm. Kingdom, the East Kingdom, the South Kingdom, and the North Kingdom. Right. Um, But... So, yeah. So, I mean... But but this even goes to the, the point of the realism you know, even yeah. more, is that he takes Wessex, as if I took Wisconsin, and then he uses even, like, real towns, and the towns he does change the name of. And that's what right. a lot of the ink in the footnotes in our, I'd say, pretty excellent mm-hmm. Wordsworth Classics edition um, yes. is spilled over, is just like, okay, so this town is obviously, blah, this town is Christchurch, or this town is is whatever. Um, right. But other than, like, changing the names, he, he you know... Hardy imports even like specific roads and he certainly drills mm-hmm. down into like the flora and the fauna um yep. as well as cultural things and dialectical things and right um you know to to a really large extent he's really at least promoting the idea that like this is a realistic novel this is not a novel of spooks and specters and and hobgoblins and so forth mm-hmm. um right and yet you're absolutely mm-hmm. right, I think, that he, to make this novel, and maybe I'm revealing my hand too early about what I think about this book, but to make it interesting, he draws on gothic elements. Yeah. Um, the, I mean, you know, the obvious, the, the like obvious standout one, if, wait, you've read the novel. Uh. All right, here we go. Go, Here we go. go. All right, you have two choices. I'm about to play a music break, and on this music break, you can either 
pause the podcast, read the entire novel, and come back. Or uh-huh. not do that and just accept that we're about to spoil everything that there is about the novel. Well put. Uh, okay, so here you go. Probably hit stop, because if you just hit pause, like, the podcast tape starts to, like, click really bad. Oh, no, this again? You, uh, yeah, I, I, I put it to bed for, like, three and a half years, and you thought you were safe. I uh, thought we were... I thought we were past this. But I was telling someone about it recently, and I was like, man, I haven't done that in a while. Um, (laughs) Anyway, uh, yeah, do that now. Okay. Uh, So, now that you either know the plot of the novel or don't don't care if we spoil it. um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, the big obvious gothic element is the horrifying, you know the child hangs all the other children and then himself scene. Yep. Um, but there are some, yep. there, and you know, we'll, I'm sure, sure we'll, it's not the only one. No, it's not. And I'm sure I was going to say, I'm sure we'll like come back to that scene inevitably sooner or later. Uh, yeah. so I, I'm not trying to like paper it over with this being the only time we talk about it or anything, but, sure. um, there are some other elements. Uh, one being when Jude and, the, the Sue? Sue, thank you. Um, wow, she has my mom's name, and I still forgot the the character. No. Um, when Jude and Sue are refinishing, uh, the... it's my mom's middle name. Wow. Uh, I wish I had a joke about that. Um, <laughs> I fly. I, I'm flying away. Um, <laughs> so. Uh, no, I forgot what I said. Yep. Uh, okay, so Jude and Sue are refinishing or whatever, doing stonemason work and stuff on the one church. Mm. And yep. is it like two local ladies tell sort of a, a story, like a local spook story that's something about yeah. illegitimate children or illegitimate lovers or something? Um, yeah. I kind of powered through this novel and it's been a little bit. Since I did, so mm-hmm. I should have. I, sure. I meant to go back and like mark some spots, but um, sure. Anyway, it even as I was reading it, even I think at one point I knew about the ending or about that that uh, climactic horror scene, um, mm-hmm. but I had forgotten about it. I think by the time I actually read this book, and uh, like. So, so not having that in mind, I was already, as these ladies are telling the story, I was like, oh, like this suddenly just, just, you know, as if you had switched channels on the TV, um, mm-hmm. you know, we, we suddenly stopped being a realistic story and started being like a Gothic, you know, mm-hmm. a Gothic spook story, which is, um, I, I really love the true Gothic period that like period mm. between like the 1750s and the 1820s when um it's considered like the the true gothic or the er the baseline gothic um right the the brontes and some of the mid mid and late 19th century are considered like the neo-gothic and i like them too but mm. anyway the the point is like this really felt like uh, he hardy had started writing in a mode that was like more popular a hundred years before this novel came out um mm-hmm. you know as if like you had a modern novelist 
who suddenly had a passage in like Victorian prose or something. Right. Um, yeah, and there are like I know that there are other places, maybe even just some of like Jude's, you know, juvenile fantasies or or even fantasies mm-hmm. from later in his life go a little bit mystical. Um, they seem like something yeah. that could be out of a out of what they called a gothic romance. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Like, the, there is there is a lot of for like what really struck me as something that wanted to be taken seriously as like a realist novel, um, mm-hmm. or at least a very representational novel. Like, it veers into gothic territory in like a surprisingly high number of ways, and like yeah. to a surprising extent when it does. And it's 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 done in kind of a sensational way too, like and the way some of the chapters end, yeah. I think, really key into that. Where it's like this chapter has ended the way like a scene in Twin Peaks would end. Sure. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, uh, it's it's like we're we're look we're staring deep into this mysterious thing that's happening right now, and it's just <gasps> and then we go on to the next chapter because we can't delve any deeper. Our mortal minds can't comprehend it. Anyway. <laughs> a little bit um, Lovecrafty in there. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. But um Do you have it, not to put you on the spot, but do you have any examples of chapter endings that struck you that way? Trying to find like there there's one earlier on, I think where Sue is in her house. Um, it's before she's met Jude, but Jude has seen her, and she's bought those um, Roman gods. Oh, yes. The Roman idols. Yes. Um, statues or whatever, and, like, just the way it ends, like, it's it ends with her, like, half praying to them or something yeah. like that. And it's, yeah. Um. Yeah, I don't know. And they're just like ominous things that are happening at the end of chapters. Um, here's uh, so at Melchester, end of chapter three in that section. So that's what section three, yeah. um, or part part third at Melchester, end of chapter three, page one twenty five. Um, it. Uh, ends with um, Jude's Jude's perspective here, and it says in the last part of that paragraph, he softly went nearer to her and observed that a warm flush now rose to her, now rose her hitherto blue cheeks and felt that her hanging hand was no longer cold. Then he stood with his back to the fire regarding her and saw in her almost a divinity. Yeah. Chapter end. Right. It's like, something mysterious and beautiful and yeah yeah it's talking about Sudan. it's interesting because it's like to me that it's it strikes me as a very baseline victorian way to end a chapter like victorian british novels often end with that like almost like overstated melodramatic like they Mm -hmm. they so desperately need to tie a bow on it that like they some they they put this like melodramatic one-liner kind of at the end there um but at the same time, you're absolutely right that, like, you know, there's the fire in that sentence, and then to, to see in her almost a divinity is very, uh, mm-hmm. um, it is very gothic, uh, 
And then you even that article A is doing a lot of load bearing in that sentence in the sense that like oh yes you know if you said he saw in her almost divinity that would be almost like a almost potentially like a Unitarian but but also a very Christian kind of kind of a an element there um, mm-hmm. whereas to say almost a divinity calls back to the Greek the Greek gods and the the Roman gods that you know. She seems to be much more interested in. Um, when you were talking about uh, the the statues that she that she bears, uh, um, there's a bit pretty early on. I want to say it's maybe when he encounters her on the road, like from the fair where she buys her statues, um, mm-hmm. and she leaves. I want to say, and he then like. Does like a prayer to Venus or something. He does a prayer to one of these pagan gods and then like almost immediately feels, you know, ashamed of it or whatever. Um, There's something like that. Yeah. Well, it, it's it's even earlier on, even before he has all these various crises. He's yeah. like reading all this Greek and Latin and stuff. And he just gets to the top of a hill and is like, I need to pray to these gods right now. Yes. And so he does. And That's, then he's all... Maybe I conflated it with a different scene, but that that is yeah. the scene that I'm thinking of. Mm-hmm. Um, even that scene has a lot of very gothic, you know, sort yeah. of uh, uh, elements to it, I guess. Um, right. The... Uh, uh, Often in literary analysis, talking about, like, again, that, that Ur-Gothic, that, that 1750s to 1820s um, era, often that gets analyzed as a reaction to the Enlightenment. And the idea about Gothic fiction is that it relies on the sense of the uncanny. Um, mm. And the further claim is that the uncanny couldn't have existed before the Enlightenment, because... Um, the mm-hmm. Enlightenment worldview, the rationalist worldview, you know, is very potentially very materialist, but not necessarily it because it even comes into Christianity to some degree. Um, right. But it, it basically is this idea that everything is systematized. Everything has its boxes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, physical reality is a certain thing that excludes certain other things. Um, and, you know... Even in Christianity, you might say, like, well, you know, angels are real and demons are real, but, like, fairies are not real or something like that, you know? Um, Right. And the sense of the uncanny comes from the idea that human beings don't seem to actually be able to function as if some of these things are true. Or, in other words, Mm. um, it's, it's people getting confronted with, evidence or at least implications that their categories are insufficient um you know you say it's Mm -hmm. a post-enlightenment thing one one says this but you know it's even predicted in in uh hamlet right there there are uh yeah wait what's the famous more More, things in heaven on there are more things in heaven on earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy horatio it's exactly that it's you know horatio is very much Mm -hmm. You know, if he'd if he'd been alive 150 years later, he would have been a an Enlightenment rationalist. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's very much right. sort of the university precursor to this. And uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's a um, very similar. Actually, in the the class I took in grad school on the early English English novel, covering 
17th, 18th, and early 19th centuries. Um, we, we talked about that connection explicitly between Hamlet and the Gothic. Um, oh, and the, sure. the professor played from Kenneth Branagh's, uh, uh, film mm. version of Hamlet. Um, the sequence with Hamlet's father. Mm-hmm. Oh, I should be able to remember more of it. The only line I can remember from the speech is it's about him, like pro like his, his unquiet spirit prowling and it's, when churchyards yawn and so the mm-hmm. graves belch forth their dead or something like that. Um, right. Brenna brings in a bunch of imagery from that, or, or I guess on top of that, that is very much Gothic. It's very, you mm. know, ruined graveyards and, and broken down castles and thunder and lightning and empty graves right. and so forth. Um, so the, the, the larger point though, is that like, the gothic the the um you know that spirit kind of comes when uh, you have sort of a breaking in on the rational world or on the the um circumscribed world of of reason and and uh knowledge you have this like uncontrollable element or unpredictable element kind of right uh uh breaking down the door as it were um and i wonder if uh basically i guess what i what my the question i'm i'm leading to is like i wonder if there's anything to that in the gothic elements of jude the obscure is does like does the realism that hardy goes to almost if not necessitate then like call out for uh some counterpoint like this. Mm. Yeah. That's, that, that's really interesting because I think it's a, it's a novel where he's almost trying to make a point, um, a moral point or, or something, um, or at least to ask a moral question. Um, and I mean, that's why it got burned. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I think he's, he's questioning that, idea of these categories and saying but isn't there something beyond these categories isn't there somewhere where other things can fit uh and the the tragedy that comes through here is um in the the like strictness of the marriage laws and and so forth in england at the time um Jude gets trapped in a in a marriage and then Sue gets trapped in a marriage and then they find a way out of it but then they have to go back to it and um yeah so i i don't know that i think he's he's borrowing on some of those gothic themes with you know that 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 uncanny brokenness, like what's here that I'm missing. Mm. That's, that's not that I can't grasp what, what is there? Um, I, I think that's directly tying into these more immediate questions of morality and life. Um, so as far as what's acceptable and, and such like that that morality itself as it's defined for example in the anglican church um at the time here um 
it's it's saying, but there's more. There, there's something that we can't grasp in the midst of all of that. That, that doesn't cover it all. That's just, there, there's something underneath is, is what I think he's missing. Sure. And you're, you're sort of positing here that maybe Hardy is bringing in these gothic themes as a way of pointing at, pointing at the idea that there's, there's something more than this, like, this, like, middle-class Anglican morality, or... Right. um, Okay, that's interesting. Uh, And I think it's, it's possible for him to do that, too, because it's an historical thing, you know, gothic literature precedes his writing, um, predates his writing. Um, so it's, there's, there's a precedent for it. Um, and so that allows him to utilize it in that way. Sure. That, Um, I don't know. That's interesting, partly because like the thing that, or the question, I guess, that occurs to me about that specifically, Mm -hmm. um, has to do with again the the big horrible tragedy uh um <laughs> the bht yes. um, which was actually an early uh working title of this novel but hardy yep. hardy thought it it gave too much away um <laughs> and then roald dahl tried to tried to write a novel called that but it was too grim to be a children's story so he uh, turned that into the bfg um right now, for graduate students listening three to five hundred years in the future, those are all literature facts. Um, if you mm-hmm. can't like find any absolutely true, if you can't find any corroboration for them, it's just because the records have been expunged or That's suppressed, or you yeah. haven't done enough good research. Yeah, it is your fault. Um, mm-hmm. Also, don't look at what gaslighting means in the twenty first century. Um, no. Anyway. It means to illuminate and to give the truth of something. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> uh, I feel like that's going to be what is our downfall. Just that little soundbite. Um, so yes, the, the BHT happens, the big horrible tragedy. And in the story, in the world of the story, it gets blamed on... The fact that uh, Jude and Sue are living in a way that's non-traditional and that's outside of this Mm -hmm. Anglican morality. So it's like they take the gothic tragedy in the world of the story. The the community sort of takes the gothic tragedy and uses it to almost do the opposite of what you just said. um, Yeah. And sort of reinforce its own, like, you know, narrow, rigid legalistic mm-hmm. uh rules that they demand everyone abide by um right i guess like in order to not prejudice the witness i'm just gonna say thoughts on that michael well i think you know by turning that into a fictionalized scene it takes a step back from that and allows a person to view all the perspectives so it's like here in this category, you're seeing, um, or in this immediate context, you're you're seeing, okay, that's that's how this is this reaction is happening. Then you take a step back and you say, oh wait, is that how we're reacting to this? You can see this perspective, the other perspective too, when you step back that way. Um, it, it turns it um, into a, a sort of parable, sure. I think, 
um, if we if we want to relate the Anglican society as like the Pharisees, you know, <laughs> here's Thomas Hardy trying to write a parable to convict the Pharisees. Sure. Even in, in the <gasps> as part of that, and this is not, you know, this is this mm-hmm. is something you would do in a parable. But as part of that, he's basically portraying the people the parable is aimed at, not getting the parable. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely part of it. Um, yeah, and you know, I, I, it, it, it gets to the concept of a book with a moral. Yeah, you know, um, and so we could we could discuss that. What is Thomas Hardy's moral? I, in, I mean, in the book, and I think like we've got some hints for it. I mean, let's but, let's do that, because um, because okay. uh, you said a, a thing that a few minutes ago that was interesting that does actually tie into like everything we've said since, but offhandedly you kind of said, uh, Thomas Hardy is making a moral point and that's why this book got burned. Mm-hmm. So I guess, yes, to ask the same question four different ways, um, like, is he making a moral point? What is the moral point? Does this book have a moral? And, Assuming you can sort of answer all of those satisfactorily, can you build a bridge for us as to why that led to it getting burned? Because I assume that the people burning the book would probably have been quite happy to say this is an immoral book. Like, that's part of why we're burning it. Right. Um, Yeah, and I think uh, Thomas Hardy's point would be it's just immoral that you don't like (laughs) (laughs) um so in text exhibit a in text is um how often jude and sue discuss their marriage non-marriage um and they say things uh, explicitly say things like um if we're happy what does it matter to anybody else um and so that you know they're they're defying the laws of the the anglican church or english marriage law or whatever um and they're they're defying social norms as well and accepting um a great deal of prejudice uh as a result um and they're objecting to that saying if we're happy what does it matter to anybody else so that's that's really exhibit a right there i think that um there's an alternate morality is um what he's getting at exhibit b would be um the uh, epigraph to the book uh Right on the title page, um, it even has the footnote, the first, the, the first end note cue um, says, the letter killeth. Oh, yes. Second um, Corinthians 3, 6. Um, so, that, and that's, you know, ha- half a verse. The letter, the letter kills, but the spirit gives sure. life. Um, and so by saying the letter killeth is he's blaming the death of, of Jude, the deaths of the children and all that on the letter, um, the the letter of the law, right? That um, this morality that's there is killing right. them because it's not allowing them life, um, vibrancy outside of, of those strictures. Um, exhibit C, um, and I think this is my last point, um, would be in the author's postscript, um, page Roman numeral 31. Yeah, I meant to go back and read this. Um, I don't think I did. I, I skimmed most of most of sure. it, but um, this is, um, it's the second to last 
full paragraph um, talking about the, the book in Germany. So after the issue of Jude the Obscure as a serial story in Germany, an experienced reviewer of that country informed the writer that Sue Bridehead, the heroine, was the first delineation in fiction of the woman who was coming into notice in her thousands every year, the woman of the feminist movement, the slight, pale bachelor girl, the intellectualized, emancipated bundle of nerves that modern conditions were producing, mainly in cities as yet, who does not recognize the necessity for most of her sex to follow marriage as a profession, and boast themselves as superior people because they are licensed to be loved on the premises. The regret of this critic was that the portrait of the newcomer had been left to be drawn by a man and was not done by one of her own sex who would never have allowed her to break down at the end. Um, so there, like, he is presenting a, a moral of, of sorts there with this um, feminist character. Sure. Um, the, the idea of progress. Um, yeah, so that's that's... So All what that is stuff? Was there more to your question? I, I guess. <laughs> well, there may have been, but I also forget. But the immediate question that comes up is like, what is the moral you see in that paragraph? Oh, okay. Um, I see that just as like further evidence, and the fact that he, as the author, wished to share what this reviewer said to him. Um, I think he's taking that as ratification. That like, yes, this is you know, here it's a feminized character. See, I'm. Succeeding okay, in that. no, but like specifically, um, what moral? Yep, the and the the moral I think is that um, this sort of person, um, the the bachelor girl, the intellectualized, emancipated bundle of nerves that model, modern conditions were producing, um, that this is a person who yeah. exists and is not allowed to live in society as it is. Um, and the moral is she should be. Oh, sure. I see. <laughs> uh, um, um, yeah, sure. I, it's, that's, it's a really interesting paragraph, honestly. Um, yeah, because I, I'm trying to like Google things really fast because this is an extremely, academic and well-researched <laughs> podcast um i feel like this reviewer is wrong that like i because i feel like a mm -hmm. i feel like there are feminist characters written by women that predate this novel and b that like plenty of them have the the female character break down at the end in one way or the other um mm-hmm he, well, Jude, uh, or not Jude, Thomas Hardy uh, admits that in the next yeah. paragraph. He says, whether this assurance is borne out by dates, I cannot say. So, so he doesn't admit it, but he like, he doesn't, like, he dis... He yeah, allows he the disclaimed. possibility. He's, he's saying that <laughs> the critic said it. He didn't say it, necessarily. Right. Um, right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, one of, uh, one of the books that came to mind... And I don't know that it necessarily bears directly, uh, but is the book Lady mm. Audley's Secret? Are you familiar with this book at all? Okay. N no, not but beyond the title, um, really. <laughs> I read it in grad school, so it's been a solid decade, but... Um, the, uh, 
It was it was written in the 1860s by a woman. Um, so you know, quite a bit before this book. Uh, and I'm trying to remember. Yeah, so the the female character in it basically, if I'm remembering correctly, um, I think she fakes her own death to get out of an unhappy <clears throat> marriage, and then maybe she even does it more than once. I don't remember. Uh, oh wow! To get out of unhappy marriages and then like kills some of the some of the previous husbands or other people who have found out about you know she she's mm-hmm. basically like the original femme fatale kind of thing i think by the end i can't remember what happens to lady oddly anyway uh i don't think she ends happily we'll put i'll put it that sure. way and i guess in a in a larger sense oh yeah she ends up dying of illness in a insane asylum um oh good and you know yes. <laughs> like it there are numerous ways to read it and like i'd have to reread it before i wanted to venture too firm of an opinion but like the point is even even when this book is written by a woman like it ends up with the woman who tries to uh mm-hmm. tries to escape this sort of domestic sphere uh ends up with her definitely you know committing murders and going insane like um and, and I guess, like, right. I'd say even even if that critic, like, I guess regardless of whether that critic is right or not, it almost doesn't matter. Like, that that criticism, anytime, like, a, a man is writing a female character or a woman is writing a male character, it's, like, a really easy and cheap criticism to be like, oh, well, if an actual man had written this or, like, if an actual woman had written this, blah 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 like it wouldn't have and it's usually like yeah. they wouldn't have done whatever thing i don't like that they did um yeah so you know it's it maybe doesn't matter in the sense that like sue is who she is in the society that she's in and like there's no happy ending for her like maybe the specific mm-hmm. sad ending for her like doesn't have to uh play out the way that it does but like you know whether she sails off back to australia or you know just tries to even i mean best case scenario she kind of gets out of the situation just tries to start a new life altogether or something like you know at the best Mm -hmm. you're like well she's gonna mess it all up again like she'll just mess it you know like you you don't have any Mm -hmm. reason to think that even in that scenario that she sort of ends up happily. Right. I don't know. Maybe we spent too much time litigating yeah. this, but. Well, yeah, I, I'm not necessarily too interested in what that critic has right. to think. A German critic. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm not interested in the but. critic so much as like how, how what they claim, you know, plays out in in the real in in the rest of things, I guess. Um, yeah. Any other yeah. thoughts on that set of things, Michael? 
I don't know. Uh, like, it's it's a question here that I don't have a complete answer sure. to about the the moral of the book. You know, is there a moral? What's the moral? Um, who is the moral addressed to? <laughs> um, and and is it uh, is it regarding uh, this English society? Um, the the religious society or the social culture, um, or is it just about humanity in general and anxieties over living as a human being? Yeah, um, I mean, there's there's like several questions we could take up in there. Um, yeah, we're kind of running up against our time for this episode. Um, right, I, I'm not suggesting no, we answer them now. You're, you're, just... you're absolutely right that like. <laughs> raising those it, raising those questions is almost more important than answering them in in some ways um yeah the the one observation out from all of that that uh i i feel like is relevant to the rest of the stuff we've talked about in this episode and and or might open up discussion for the next episode is the idea of like who are you writing for are you writing for this society or no mm-hmm. and like there are certainly writers who right. have taken a position that um and it's a very hard position and usually these writers die in more or less poverty but um the position that like the society i'm in the culture that i'm in like is irredeemable it's at least irredeemable in the immediate future in the short run however out from this i feel like i can sort of send a, a prophecy or even a, a, a prophetic warning to future generations and they can, right. you know, like it's almost the, it's, I mean, it's the thing that we do as a, as a joke, uh, unless you're listening to this 300 yeah. years in the future, um, of like talking to future grad students, but like there are, are novelists and yep. other artists who have genuinely, this has been their project is to say like, okay, get out of get out of this get out of here do something else here's why um and or like Mm -hmm. okay i know no one now understands me but here's a here's a call to the future please you understand me um people often talk about james joyce and that connection as well if for no other reason than it seems like he has invented a prose style from a thousand years in the future you know um and and among other old saws from this podcast, Gene Wolfe also um, often seems like he's writing this way. Yeah. Uh, and and Wolf Wolf acknowledged it explicitly. He said, "You know, we're we're writing in a context uh, in which we will be contemporaries with Mark Twain and Tacitus. Like, if you're not writing for mm-hmm. a scope of ten thousand years or fifty thousand years, like, why are you bothering?" Um, you know, and a lot of writers, including a lot of a lot of literary writers and a lot of writers of what are now considered classics, had a much narrower chronological scope than that. You know, um, and mm-hmm. I think I don't think because you're writing for the immediate present or because you're writing for the future that that's necessarily what your legacy will be. It does seem like there's a disconnect between intention right. and reality there, but. Um, <laughs> that said in in some places i feel like thomas hardy is very much writing for the future 
Um, there are a handful of passages yeah. where he even says, or has a character say, like, well, in 50 years, this will be nothing, but unfortunately, we have to be yep. martyred for this now, basically. And, like, in almost every yep. incident, like, those characters were right. You know, like... Right. No, absolutely. Some of these, like, sexual norms and, and mores and stuff are, like, they were absolutely and not, right. Not even just the, the <laughs> that stuff, but just, like... Well, related to yeah. that stuff, I guess, but just the idea that, like, okay, now here in the 1880s, like, we're yeah. all sort of sort of rigidly held to this one standard of, of sexual norms or sexual mores. In 50 years, this will be different. And, like, by the 1930s, like, that, there was still some of that to some degree, but it had certainly changed sure. a great deal. You know, you wouldn't have, yes. like, Sue and, uh, and Jude would not have been hounded out of, um, you know, out of any of a decent number of small towns in England, and certainly, a de- like, almost any neighborhood in London, say, in the 1930s. Um, yeah. You know, even if people didn't... And it, it's, like, it, it's a difference in attitude, too, because, like, I, I think in the by the 1930s, and I don't know if we have any British listeners who want to correct me on this, like... I'm super open to that, but I suspect that even by the 1930s, in a lot of places in England, if you had people who were living like this, sort of out of wedlock or whatever, like, even if you were morally judged, the, like, mm-hmm. social consequences and the, um, you know, the, the social pressure wouldn't have been as dire, like, I, I, I couldn't see England yeah. in the 1930s being somewhere where people shouldn't have a place to stay because they were living together out of wedlock, you know, where they should be essentially homeless Mm -hmm. i could be again i could be wrong about that 50 years in the future certainly 100 years in the future like you know that certainly would have been Mm -hmm. true um so like but you know at the same time it's like maybe there's a chicken or egg question obviously where it's like did thomas hardy have some effect on creating this future in rather than just predicting it um i think i want to return to this line of thinking and line of questioning in the next episode okay. but michael unless there's something you want to you really want to get it in this particular discussion we're super mm. super out of time i think i think i want to talk a little bit more about the the bht absolutely next time yeah too, that so. seems seems necessary uh for sure um mm-hmm. all right uh if there's nothing else, then, Michael, for this one, uh, then I'm going to open the script again. I mean, look back at the script that we carefully worked on and been reading from this whole time. Uh, no ratings this time, I believe. Uh, so, right. gentle listener, please uh, feel free to, if you haven't already read the book, um, we've spoiled large parts of it, but, you know, you can still feel free to... Mm-hmm. Read it before the next one. Uh, having an introductory episode and then one where you've read the book actually could be fun. I don't know. Um, so yeah, uh, feel free to read along. Give us your feedback. You can go to the contact section of tapestryradio.org. Put Scotch Talk in the subject line. We are at Room with Scotch on Twitter. I am at Bjartlet on Twitter. That's at B-J-A-R-T-L-E-T-T. Michael, are you on Twitter? I am. I am at M-G-L-I-L-I-E-N-T-H-A-L. Uh, you can submit your homework to us. 
Uh, it's been a while since we had a homework special, so it would be interesting to uh, get a hold of someone's homework, whether it's past homework, current homework, or future homework. Um, if it is current or future homework, mm-hmm. we would like you to commit plagiarism because we think it's funny. Um, and we would love to see you get hauled off to plagiarism jail. Uh, we won't do your homework well, and we won't do it in a way that, like, makes any sense to your actual, like, legitimate teacher. Um, but go ahead and turn it in, verbatim. Uh, you can find that at tapestryradio.org slash scotchcast. There's a form there. Fill it out. Get hauled off to plagiarism jail. Um, if you like this podcast, check out our other shows on the Tapestry Radio Network, um, such as Intermission, uh, our backstage audio drama plot podcast, there's Us Play Fiasco, uh, Fiasco Real Play RPG podcast, there's Freddy Goes to a Podcast, um, where three grown men read through a children's book series from 100 years ago, there's Pokemon Rollout, Pokemon Tabletop United actual play RPG podcast. Uh, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Do they still exist? Anyway, wherever you get your podcast podcasts, so. uh, yeah. we don't pay to advertise, so that's how everyone else can learn about us. Uh, anything else you wanted to mention, Michael? No. Oh. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, that said, <laughs> till next time, just remember, it's our party, and we'll pry if TH... Wait. BHD? I forgot what the acronym was. We'll cry if BHG happens. Obscurantism and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Obviated objects of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From From our our fancy fancy to to yours. yours.